and took the ring, so I'm just going to keep leaving here. It may be fold, actually. maybe fake gold. I'm not sure. I don't think it's real. So either way, we're not going to bank on this for the future of the church, turning that in. So we're going to leave it right there if you want it. I went downstairs, and Jeff, who went down to lead our kids, goes, what's going on? Is this like casual Sunday? I'm like, first of all, every day here is casual Sunday. But we're walking the neighborhood, so I uh, wore my walking the neighborhood clothes. So uh, remember, reminder again, we are walking the neighborhood after church. So if I forget to tell you and we're done with our message today, stick around right here. We'll give instructions and pass out flyers and tell you what it's going to look like and give us in half an hour, and we'll invite a whole bunch of people to come to church in the park next week. If you're here for the first time, again, I want to tell you how honored we are to have you. It is a pleasure that you would give us part of your Sunday morning. Um, We are in the middle of a journey through the book of Acts. And I say the middle because we are just about at the halfway point, uh, which is really exciting. We are in week 30 of a verse-by-verse, not skipping any words, movement through the book of Acts. And it's taken us through some of the most amazing kind of experiences in, in the history of the church. We've seen the ascension of Jesus Christ. We've seen the birth of the church. We've seen the Holy Spirit show up. We've seen miracles and depression and drought and famine and struggle and hurt and heartache. And we've seen all kinds of things transpire in the first 13 chapters of the book of Acts. And it's been an incredible journey. But the great thing about the book of Acts is that it's not just a historical retell of how the church became or how the church became about. It really is a call. It's the call of the Christ follower. It's the the movement of the church into the world. And in essence, it's your call and my call as followers of Christ. We don't peer into the story and say, hey, that's really cool historical account of what God was doing. But this story, the book of Acts, is the story uh, of us. It's our story. It's a story of the church. And so what we're going to see today is that the church goes from this sort of fledgling group of about 100 to plus 10,000-ish, and now it is being thrust literally into the world by the Holy Spirit, fulfilling the great commission that Jesus himself commanded the disciples to go and do that's echoed through Acts chapter 1 when Jesus, uh, being ascended into heaven, says that you, all of you, will be my, uh, my witnesses. You will bear witness to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the very ends of the earth that we become the movement of the Holy Spirit, that we are sent into the world. And we're going to explore what that looks like because the first missionary journey uh, to the known world will happen um, in this part of Acts chapter 13. So just by way of a brief recap, we've had a pretty big movement in history take place over the past couple of weeks. King Herod, who is the grandson of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great was the king that was over all the area, because you've got to remember Israel and all that area was under Roman occupation, and, and he was the king that was over all that area, Herod the Great. And he was the one that was around about the time that Jesus was born. And if you remember your history, he had all the infant boys slaughtered. And Mary and Joseph kind of ran off with Jesus so that he wouldn't be uh, killed in that. And God kind of protected him. Well, that was Herod the Great. Well, the Herod that was, we saw killed last week in this sort of humbling, humiliating kind of way was the grandson of that Herod. And he was now put in charge of all the land that his grandfather was. And he decided that he needed to win the praise of the people. He wanted the people, in, uh, J- mainly in Jerusalem, to really love him. Because they were a powerful people group, and he wanted them to love them, him as a ruler. And so he went into the town knowing there was an issue with these Christians, this sort of uprising that was causing a threat to the very Jewish way of life. And so he had James, right? 
James, he had him arrested and put on trial and ultimately beheaded in front of everyone. And James was the leader of uh, the movement. He was one of the disciples of Jesus Christ himself. And Herod had him publicly executed. And it just, thinking it would break the backbone of the church, well, the Jewish people just rejoiced. They thought this was the greatest thing ever. And so Herod, having seen the praise of the people, decided that he was going to take it a step further, further. And he had Peter arrested. Now, Peter was the face of the church. I mean, if there was any singular person that was the mouthpiece of the church, it was Peter, right? Because even Jesus himself said, Peter, on uh, you are the rock upon which I will build this church. Peter was a leader of the church, not just in Jerusalem, but all over the known world at that point in time where Christians gathered. Peter was the apostle of the church. And so Herod had him arrested. And the believers got together and they prayed because they knew what was coming, that just like James... Uh, Peter was going to be put on trial and executed. Well, in the middle of the night, in a miraculous sort of deliverance, the Holy Spirit shows up in a really cool way, delivers Peter from prison. And when Herod finds out about this, that, that Peter escaped, he was embarrassed, he was furious, he was humiliated, he had all the guards that were in charge of Peter, had them all executed, right? And then last week, what we saw was that Herod left the area in Jerusalem to go up to the coast because he needed to exercise his authority a little bit more. And there were a couple of towns that he was in a little bit of a disagreement with. And so he went to go exercise his authority because he was trying to save face. And he went up to the city and he put on a series of shows for the regions of Tyre and Sidon, basically to show and demonstrate his power. And he came out to the show to celebrate the birthday of a town called Caesarea. And he was wearing robes that were woven of silver, literally silver threads. And he was showing this sort of opulence, and, and he was showing how powerful he was. And when he began to speak, the people cried out, Surely this guy is not a human being, but he is a god, right? Which is exactly what Herod wanted to be known as. And, and our story last week tells us that because Herod didn't defer praise to God, but took it upon himself, an angel of the Lord showed up and struck him, and he died. And the text tells us that his body was eaten by worms. Kind of fascinating. We went through that last week about why that was important and the reality of power and all those kind of things. So we won't get into it this week. But his body was eaten by worms. And chapter 12 ends with um, Paul and Barnabas returning from their journey from Jerusalem. Herod has died. He has returned to the dust. Paul and Barnabas return from Jerusalem to a town called Antioch. Now, that is where the sort of gospel movement is going to begin from. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But way it wrapped up chapter 12, Herod has died in this sort of power kind of exchange has happened, and God is using that moment, both the, the death of James and the death of Herod, to propel the mission of the church forward, and we're going to see the first missionary journey begin, and we're going to see what it means this week for you and I to live in the categories of a sent people. So let's go ahead and, if you got your Bible, turn it to Acts chapter 13, and before we go in there and start diving into that text, let's take a moment and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here today. God, I thank you that your word is living and active, that it is truth, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that you tell us it, it uh, judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, that it divides joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that God, it is your very breath, Lord, that you tell us it is the breath of God, it is a theopneses, it is the breath of God, and Lord, we believe that you are going to speak to us and reveal your truth to us this morning. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to uh, teach you this morning, just to something about his character, about who he is, just that God will teach your heart what you need to hear.
pray for someone beside you, in front of you, or behind you. Pray that God would move in them this morning. Be in the habit of praying for other people, even if you think that's a little odd. Just pray for somebody. and exalted as we open your word and as we study your truth, God, that you would be the revealer of all things. Lord, we pray that you would be exalted and lifted up, and we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Chapter 13, we'll get for the first 12 verses as we begin to see the launch of the church into the world. This is 13. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God at the Jewish synagogues, and John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elamas, the sorcerer, for that was what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from his faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elamas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you, and you are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately a mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So here's what we see. All right, Paul and Barnabas had gone to Jerusalem to deliver a gift from the church in Antioch. Now, Jerusalem was experiencing a famine, and when the church in Antioch, which was quite a bit north of Jerusalem, heard that the believers in Jerusalem were experiencing a famine, they got together and they gathered up their resources, even though they knew that that famine was soon going to be on their land. Talked about this three weeks ago, and they delivered it to Jerusalem, and they sent Paul and Barnabas to do it. And Paul and Barnabas have returned from that journey, and they come back to the church in Antioch. And what Luke does, he gives us a little glimpse into the leadership of the church. He says, this is a church that's unfolding in Antioch. And he lists five people that are kind of uh, in charge, if you will. He says there's prophets and there's teachers, and there's about five of them that are important. And I'll just kind of go through them quickly so you can hear them. We've got Barnabas, who we all know. Barnabas has kind of been a part of the picture. He was the first that was sent up from Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came to the church in Antioch. The Holy Spirit showed up, outpouring of gifts, and the Jewish leaders sent, or the Jewish Christian leaders send Barnabas up. Well, Barnabas spends a full year there. He actually goes and gets Saul, who was living in, in uh, Tarsus at the time, brings him back, and he and Paul, or Saul, same person, begin to teach for a full year there in, in Antioch. And that was Barnabas. We know about him. We have Simeon called Niger, most likely from the area of Ethiopia, south of uh, Jerusalem and south of the Mediterranean, the front part of Africa. Niger in Latin means black, so the idea is that most likely he's from those Ethiopian countries. We don't know much else about him about that. We have this guy named Lucius of Cyrene. If you remember way back in chapter 11, um, when the believers were kind of scattered a little bit, 
there were some men from Cyrene and, uh, that, that kind of made the way over, Greeks that made their way over to Antioch and shared the gospel because the Jewish people, Jewish Christians in Antioch wouldn't share the gospel with the Greeks. You remember that? And so some people from the islands came over to share the gospel. And most likely, Lucius was one of those people that came over from Cyrene to share the gospel uh, when the Holy Spirit came there. Then you've got this guy named Menaean, who I'll mention in a minute, and finally Saul, who we know. Now, now Menaean's story is really, really, really interesting. And we don't get any of this from the text, except that we hear that he was raised, right, with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this is a really fascinating story that is sort of almost glossed over here, but will give you a little light into how the first century church kind of operated. Well, Menaean, we know from other texts, was a half-brother of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, Herod the Great was ruler of this entire region back when Jesus was born. But when he died, he divided up the kingdom into four sections, and he gave it each section to one of his sons. There's four of them. Hence the reason they're all called Herod the Tetrarch. So when you hear the word Herod the Tetrarch, there's actually four of them, and they had other names associated with them. Now, Menaean was the half-brother. He was raised in the house of Herod the Tetrarch Antipas. Now, that may mean nothing, but if you know your Christian history, Herod Antipas was the Herod that was the one that was responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist. He was also the one that was responsible in conspiring with the Jews and the Romans to have Jesus himself executed when he was put on trial. Menaean was raised as his half-brother in the house of Herod the Great, which is fascinating because if you think back to redemptive history, does that sound like anybody else that you know about in the Old Testament? Remember the story of Moses? Raised in Pharaoh's household, right? Chosen by God to redeem and bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. Well, here's Menaean, raised in the very household, right, of Herod the Great, the one that tried to have Jesus killed as an infant, the brother that ended up having John the Baptist killed and conspired to have Jesus executed. This Menaean runs headlong into the gospel of Jesus Christ at some point in time, surrenders his heart, is saved, and now he's the leader, or one of the leaders in the church in Antioch. And we have no idea. And it's fascinating because it's almost as if the early church, it didn't matter to them what their story was or what his history was, but that he had been saved and redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and that God had anointed him and appointed him as a leader and therefore he was a leader, right? No account of his history and no kind of, oh, you can't do this because you were raised this way. No, the reality was that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes and redeems. And here you have Menaean, probably a part of a lot of that mess, right? now saved and redeemed, kind of pulled out of that situation by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you've got these five leaders, right? And it's almost as if Luke's just sort of setting the scene because something is about to happen. So you've got these five leaders, and they are in worship with all the people. So the entire church is in worship, and they're fasting, and they're praying together. And the Holy Spirit shows up and says this, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. All right, So they're in worship and prayer together. The leaders and the people are seeking the face of God. And the Holy Spirit shows up and says, take Paul and Barnabas and set them apart. All right, Because I have got something that I'm going to use them for. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. And the first missionary journey begins. The church is gathered together in worship. The Holy Spirit speaks, set apart from me, Paul and Barnabas, and immediately the church prays and fasts and obediently follows the call of the Lord, and they send Paul and Barnabas off as the first missionaries. A quick word before we kind of keep going through this about how the sort of bureaucracy and corporate structure of our church today works in situations like this. And I don't know, maybe you've been raised in the church, maybe you haven't, but imagine how this situation unfolds if you 
think about it in today's kind of movement of church corporate culture, right? You've got an individual or a pair of individuals that feel called by the Lord to go to some faraway land, right? That they are going to be going to Asia or Africa or wherever. So they begin to feel this call. And they take about, you know, two or three months just to pray over it, discern it, and make sure God is really calling. Then they get their family together. They ask their family and friends to pray about it. They begin to pray about it together to make sure the call was right. Seven months or so go by. They go and sit down with the pastor, and they share the vision. They say, Pastor, here's what's going on. I believe that God has called me here there. Pastor's very excited because he thinks that's great. And so he says, well, you need to visit with the mission team. They're the ones that sort of sets this stuff up and can kind of help you. And he's real excited. And so he gives you the number or the email address for the, the mission team leader, and you email that person, and you're real excited, and they're real excited. And they only meet once a month. And unfortunately, they met last Monday. So they ask you to come back three weeks from now. And while you're in the meantime, can you get a kind of a prospectus together so that we know what you're looking at? Organizations are going to go with finances, all that, put it all together. You say, yes, of course. And then you go, what in the world is a prospectus? So you get online and you Google it, and you find out that there's like 500 examples of mission prospectuses out there for missionaries that are going in the field. So you Christian steal one, right? It means you just sort of take the pictures out, use the words or whatever, and change it all up because it's just borrowing, really. Nothing in ministry is original. So you take it, somebody else's, you put it all in there, you get together with the commission. They're all excited about it because you're called to this. And they ask you to come back next month when they'll be able to have their budget discussions and talk about how they're going to be able to support you. So in 30 days, they invite you to come back. In the meantime, you begin your support raising process where you get all your parents' friends together and you find their addresses and you send them letters, right, about where you're going and what you're going to do because for you're going to go for the next year and a half and it's going to cost $35,000 to do that. You don't have that kind of money, but God has called you eight months ago. He called you to go and do this. And so finally the church mission team calls you back, you go back 30 days later, you sit with them, and they are so excited to tell you that they're going to be on your support team for $100 a month, and you're really excited, but you start doing the math, and you're going $1,800 out of $35,000, the church is super excited, the pastor's excited, because now they're sending a missionary to Asia, sending is a liberal term there, but they're sending a missionary to Asia for the bargain cost of $1,800 a month. So on the day before you're about to leave, they stand you up in front of the church, and for two minutes before announcements, they get a few folks together, and they pray for you, and they let you tell your story a little bit, but you're on a real tight time frame, so you got to kind of get out there. A couple of families ask you to go for pizza after church. They can hear your story. You catch a plane, and you fly away, right? First month in, it's really tough. You send a newsletter home, which goes to the church secretary, and she gets it, and she looks at it, and she says, it's amazing. And so she puts it on the pastor's desk. He doesn't really know what to do with it, and he gets buried under a legal pad that has some notes from the mission or from the membership meeting from 2013. And the next thing you know, we don't hear from you for nine months. That incredibly ridiculously tongue-in-cheek, I get it. But having worked in the church for 20 years, it is all too real. That is the scenario of sending within our context of the sort of bureaucracy, the movement, the corporate structure of the church. We see nothing like that here. What we see is that the church is engaged in worship together. Leaders and people fasting and praying, waiting on the Lord. God shows up, says set apart and send, and the church responds immediately. What I find fascinating about this is the first missionary journey was not the result of some strategic visioning to evangelize the world. It wasn't a sit-down meeting to figure out ways that we can strategize to reach the unreached people groups. It was the church in worship, and the Holy Spirit shows up and says, I'm going to do something here, so set these people apart. He doesn't really even tell them what they're doing. He just says, set them apart, begin to pray for them, and the church does exactly that. They pray for them, they lay hands on them, which is not a, a demonstration of power. It's actually a symbolic demonstration of God sending people, right? They lay hands on them, and they send them off. 
Well, the two of them, they go on their way, sent by the Holy Spirit in verse 4. So the church isn't really empowered, but the Holy Spirit sends them. And they go down to Seleucia, and they sail to Cyprus. Now, Seleucia was uh, in Syria. That was the port city. And they went down to the port city, and they sailed to the island of Cyprus, which is about 130 miles into the Mediterranean Sea. Right? And they land on the far east side in a little town called Salamis, which is on the east side of the island. And they're going to make their way 90 miles across to the kind of westernmost part of that island uh, in an island called Paphos, or a town called Paphos. And they're going to go from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue to synagogue because this becomes a sort of a description of Paul's missionary journeys. He goes from the place where the Jewish people gather and he begins to preach. And he goes to the next town and does the same thing. It's his launching place for the gospel. Well, they go 90 miles across the island by foot through all these little towns and synagogues, and they reach the far end of the island. And when they do, right, they get word that the leader of the whole island, the ruler of the entire island, right, a guy by the name of Sergius Paulus, who was proconsul, so a very Greek-sounding name in charge of the entire island, he calls for them because he wants to hear the word of God. He hears what they're preaching, he hears what they're preaching about, and he wants to hear it for himself. Luke tells us he's a very intelligent man, and he's sent for them because because he wants to hear the word of God. So he sends for Paul and Barnabas. But he's got this attendant. This attendant's name is Bar-Jesus, and he's an Elimas, which is a witch doctor, a sorcerer, a magician. He was someone that foretold the future, and he worked for, right, the leader. And basically the leader would look at him, and he would say, hey, is this a good thing? And, And this little kind of witch doctor, sorcerer, magician would kind of be paid to look into the future and tell the leader if this was a good decision or not. Well, when they heard that the gospel was going to be presented, we find that this Bar-Jesus, whose name literally means son of Jesus or son of Yeshua in Hebrew, Joshua, um, which is just kind of irony more than anything else, when he hears the gospel message being shared with the proconsul, with Sergius Paulus, he tries to stop it. He tries to convince the leader, the, the, the Proconsul, not to accept this message. Well, we get this really stern rebuke from Paul, right? So Paul doesn't enter into an engagement with him. He doesn't try and get into a discussion or an apologetic argument. He basically looks at him, looks straight at this sorcerer, right? This this sort of evil person, if you will. And he says, you are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery where you never stop perverting the right ways, or really the better translation is the straight ways, Will you never stop perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you, and you're going to be blind for a time, and you will be made unable to see light of the sun. And immediately a mist of darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Really ironic or really interesting that this is the exact way that God got Paul's attention. You remember Paul on the road to Damascus, knocked to the ground, blinded by light, scales on his eyes, led by his hand into the city to wait on God's move, temporarily bind. Here's Paul now proclaiming that same thing on this person, saying, why are you perverting, right, the straight ways of the Lord? Why are you getting in the way, attempting to thwart God's plan? Here's what's going to happen. For a temporary time, you are going to go blind. The very person that was called to see into the future, right, you are going to be rendered blind. It says immediately this dark mist kind of comes about him, and he can't see. And he begins to grope about, looking for the hand of someone to guide him. It is so much like what happened to Saul himself. So he's blind, groping about looking for the hands. And when the proconsul, right, Sergius Paulus sees this, right, he says, this is incredible. And he begins to believe because he saw this moment and he believed the teaching of the Lord. So the entire ruler of the island of Cyprus 
get saved. And I started thinking about this scenario, and I thought to myself, why does Luke choose to tell this story as the first story of the missionary journeys? Because they landed, and they went, I mean, for 90 miles, days and days and days, most likely even months, synagogue to synagogue. And knowing what we know about the Holy Spirit, surely there were other incredible stories that were told. But Luke uses this one to sort of set the kind of movement of the missionary journeys. And I think there's, there's a couple reasons. One, the obvious reason is that we see the leader of the entire uh, region, the entire island, the entire country get saved. I mean, come headlong into the gospel of Jesus Christ and have his life changed. The first missionary journey, God sends them to Cyprus and the leader gets saved, which is amazing. But really, I think there's something deeper there. And I think that what Luke is doing is he's laying the foundation, the uh, realities of things like the nature of God um, and the purpose of salvation Things along those lines that I think are going to be foundational movements, not just for the missionary or for the missionary movements to come, but are foundational realities that you and I have to understand about the nature and character of God. All right, and so a couple of things I want you to see, and I'll kind of lay them out. And the, and the first two really are about sort of the nature of who God is that we see laid out in this text um, that I think that Luke is preparing us for because the entire trajectory of the gospel is now changed. The gospel is now going out in the world. It is the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the call of Jesus in, the, in Acts chapter 1. It is going into the world. And what we're going to see is some realities about the nature of God that should not only shape who we are as followers of Christ, but should shape who we are as a church. And the first one is this. The first one is that God is a sending God. And therefore, as followers of Christ, we exist to be sent. Now, if you've come to church here longer than three weeks, you have heard me talk about this principle. It is so ingrained in who we are. It's in our, from our mission to our values to our core theology. The idea that the church exists to be sent. God is a sending God, right? From the very onset of Christian history to the Old Testament beginning of God bringing Abraham, God is a sending God. He sends people into places as demonstrations of his character and his love, as his hands, as his feet, as his representatives. He in his very nature is a sending God. And because God is a sending God, like we see here with Paul and Barnabas, we exist as people who are sent. God is a sending God, and as followers of Christ, we exist as a sent people. Our church culture is very different than that, right? We don't actually understand the nature of that. Being sent is for that person that I described earlier who gets a call from the Lord to go to that country. That is a sent person. But what we have to understand is that sending is not about people going other places, but it's the very call on your life as a follower of Christ. I told a story a few years ago about a guy I met in a uh, coffee shop. I was doing some work for a Sunday. I think I was actually preaching through James a couple years ago. And I was sitting there, and I, I do a lot of this because I just don't like to sit by myself. I like to sit around people, and I was getting ready for Sunday, and this guy, my Bible opened, and I was doing whatever, and this guy stops, and he kind of hovers over me. And I'm so used to awkward encounters, like I have, it almost just happens to me pretty much on a daily basis. I have some conversation with someone, it's kind of weird or awkward or whatever, but I'm used to it, and he's hovering over me, and he asks me what I'm doing. Just this kind of, you know, whatever, 40-year-old guy standing there hovering over me, asking what I'm doing in the little coffee shop, and I look up at him, and he's standing really close to me, so I'm looking at this, this angle, and so I kind of look up at him, and I say, well, you know, I'm kind of getting ready to teach on Sunday. Uh, I have this church that we've got, and I'm teaching the book of James and kind of going on. And, and I told him what I was kind of looking through in the passage, I think, was, if I remember right, it was pretty complicated. And so I was kind of wrestling with it, and I just kind of let him know. I was, 
really wrestling with how to teach this thing. I'm probably oversharing a little bit. I look him in the eye, and I get to the end of what I was saying, and I stop, and he's just staring at me, like eyeball to eyeball. So we're just silence, like looking at each other. And I, I'm thinking in my head, like, we're, ha- we're literally having a staring contest right now. <laughs> and so, I'm, and also in my heart, I'm thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not going to lose that, right? Like, if that's what we're doing, I didn't know, but I don't lose things. And so I was like, so I'm eyes locked with this guy. And after a few, like, it felt like minutes, but probably it's more like 30 seconds, I, I, I just was like, hey, man, what are we doing here? I, I asked him, I was like, what are we doing? Are we having a staring contest? Because if so, I'm going to win. Right, because I figured I'd make it more awkward than it already was. And he goes, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. When you were talking about that, kind of what you were teaching on, it just got me to thinking about some things that my wife and I are struggling with. And I thought, interestingly enough, what do you mean? He goes, well, we've been looking for a church for a long time, and it's been so frustrating. You know, we're looking for a church that meets all of our needs, from the teaching to the classes to worship. And he kind of went through this list of things that they were looking for. And he said, we just cannot find these things at all. And as he's explaining all this, I'm thinking, well, yeah, I mean, obviously not. I mean, that's incredible. And so I looked at him and I said, haven't found it yet, have you? And he said, no. I said, well, if you do, let me know because I would like to go there because it sounds awesome. And he said, well, what about your church? Do you all offer any of those things? To which I laughed harder because two years, you think we're a white hot mess now. You should have seen us two years ago, right? So... I laughed and said, no, we have, we have, let's see, not that one, we don't have that one, we don't have that one. No, we don't have any, we don't do any of those things, man. Um, and so we kind of laughed a little bit, and we started talking about it and told him about what we do and whatever. And, and the, that wasn't really the point. But the point was, is that what I began to realize is that each one of us have been raised in that lie, that cultural lie of church that says, I've got to find a place that meets all of my needs, Right? that meets all of the things that I desire from the worship style to the way that things are taught, to the way that people make me feel, to the kind of things that they do, to the classes they offer for my kids. You know, you've heard me talk about this stuff a lot. We've been taught that lie. And if you don't offer that to me, I'll give you a few chances. And if you don't offer it to me, eventually I'm going to take my things and we're going to go somewhere else. And most church growth happens not because we're winning new people with the gospel, but because we're trading disenchanted members around. It's just the reality. It's sad and depressing, but it's, re- it's the reality. And we take our stuff, and we go to a new place, and we don't like that, and we go to a new place. And so you get here, and I've told this a couple weeks ago, actually, you get here with all your baggage, and you expect this place to be different, and you've got all your stuff, and we just gather with our baggage about what we're looking for and what you have to offer me. And the reality is, this is not church, right? You are the church, and you exist to be sent. But everything in our culture pushes back against this. In fact, I meet someone every single Sunday, and if you said this to me today, I'm going to apologize. I'm not talking to you directly because it happens to me every week. Meet someone new, they come in, and I say, well, hey, aren't you brothers, whatever, whatever, and they say, we're just here looking for a church home. Even the way that we talk about church pushes against the reality that God is ascending God and that we are the church sent into the world. I'm looking for a church home, and most of us want that. We want to walk into a place where we feel comfortable, we can kick off our shoes, we can sit around a little bit, we can feel a little bit challenged, but not enough to make us really awkward. We want a place that feels super comfortable and safe like our own homes. And then maybe five times a year we'll invite the neighbors over, hope they're not really weird and they don't stay too long. That's how we feel about church. We're looking for a home. Here's the thing. The church is not your home. It doesn't exist for you to get comfortable, to take off your shoes and find a bunch of people that make you feel good and give you back rubs. The church does not exist that way. You are the church, and you exist to be sent into the world. If our end result is to gather in this place, I want out. 
this can't be it. So that we can all get together and feel comfortable about our little disillusions about other churches. The reality is, you are the church and you exist to be sent. Why? Because God is a sending God. Sometimes that is across the, the known world and sometimes it is across the room. But you exist to be sent. And the church that gathers and worships together and hears the voice of God and responds in obedience is understanding what it means to be sent. It's not a call for the missionary. It's not a call for our friend Reagan who's on the iPad here in Thailand. It is your call to say, God, where are you sending me today? Who am I supposed to speak to? Standing in line at Starbucks or the bank or in the office or wherever I am, how do I exist as a representation of the gospel in this moment in my life? God, where are you sending Who are you sending me to speak to, to love, to engage with, right? God is a sending God. The moment that we call this church our home is the moment that we begin a path of failure. The church is not our home. We are the church and we exist to be sent because God is a sending God. The second thing that we see is that God is a searching and saving God. So God sends, but God always sends with a mission. God is not sending in arbitrary ways. He's not inconsistent. He's not in maintenance mode. God has a purpose and a plan, and God is always on mission. And when God sends people, he sends with a purpose to take the saving grace of Jesus Christ into the world. The church has mistaken that call so many times for the call to go and do good things. So we feel like we need to go and serve or go and do because it makes us feel better about the opulence in our own life. And so we go and do acts of service. Acts of service without the gospel of Jesus Christ is just good works. The reality is that God is a searching and saving God. And he sins with the purpose of taking the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world. It was Paul and Barnabas' mission. They went synagogue to synagogue to synagogue preaching the resurrected Christ. The reality is, the reality is, is that God is a searching and saving God. And at the heartbeat of our being sent should be the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. The, my favorite parable that sort of paints us out is the parable of the lost sheep. It's my, my favorite one out of all those sort of uh, lost parables, coin, son, and whatnot. But it's my favorite parable because it paints this picture. And you may remember, it's played out in Luke chapter 15 where he says, he's talking to a whole bunch of people and he says, listen. How many of you, if you were shepherds and you had, had a bunch of sheep, you had a hundred sheep and you lost one, would not leave everything behind to go and pursue the one? And when you found the one, would you not scoop up that one and place that sheep on your shoulders and return all the way back home and then call everybody that you knew and rejoice and throw a party because you found the sheep that was lost? Remember that parable? It's the heartbeat of God's love. That God is so in pursuit and so searching and such a saving love that he chases and pursues the heartbeat of people. Not for the purpose of just tracking them down and berating them for having wandered. God doesn't show up to that sheep and be like, I can't believe you took off. I had everything prepared for you. What a ridiculous animal you are. He rejoices and he carries that animal home and he celebrates. God's love is a saving, celebratory love. It is seeking and it is driven by the saving truth of Jesus Christ. Most of us are petrified to proclaim the gospel message. We are so afraid of offending people that our being sent means that I'm going to go and I'm going to try and live in the best moral way possible so that somebody might see Jesus at work in me. The reality is, at some point in time, you're going to come to the understanding that no one will see Jesus at work in you because you are a sinful mess. And we have to begin to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
that even in my mess and even in my struggle, even my sinful nature, God has saved me. Paul, Barnabas didn't show up in the synagogue and just hug everybody. They actually proclaimed the resurrected Christ. And if you're here for, for the first time, and maybe you need to hear this, you're here this morning, you don't know this, God's searching and saving love is for you. It is for you. It is not just for those that exist outside these walls. No matter how far you've wandered, drifted, run, no matter how difficult, God will not give up. No matter what the struggle is, God will chase you, and he will pursue you, and his love is celebrating, and it is saving. And most of us in this room feel completely unlovable. Like we have messed up beyond compare, and God has somewhat given up on us. It's a lie. It's the whisper of the enemy. God's love is never ceasing. It never stops. It is beautifully relentless. And when he finds you, like the parable says, and he will, he celebrates and he brings you home. God's movement, God doing, God's initiation, God's return, God's celebration. All you did was wander. The reality is God is in everything else. His love is searching and it is saving. So the first two things that we see about God is that God is a sending God, sends people, the church, into the world. And as followers of Christ, we are a sent people like it or not. We've got to get past our barriers there. That God's love is searching and saving. It is a proclamation of the gospel. That is the message we are called to proclaim. But then finally, I think the thing that Luke sets us up for happens with this guy bar Jesus, right? This, uh, this sorcerer, this magician. And that's this truth. There will always be things or people in your life that will attempt to pervert the straight way of the Lord. There will always be things or people in your life that will attempt to pervert the straight or right way of the Lord. This is really important because when you give your life to Jesus, things don't get easier. They don't get more kind of nice. They get more complicated. What we're going to see in the book of Acts is that shipwrecks happen, snake bites happen, people are killed, beheaded, arrested. Giving your life to Christ means the enemy will show up in opposition. Did we think that Paul and Barnabas were going to walk into the island of Cyprus and with golden gates, everyone's just going to open wide? No way. The enemy is at work. And so Bar-Jesus does everything he can to dissuade the message of Paul and Barnabas. There are those people in your life. Most of you have them. Sadly, sometimes they're people that are closest to us. that are saying, why have you given your life to that garbage? When I was a freshman in college, I got a potluck roommate. Um, he was a sophomore, I was a freshman. First encounter with him, right? First encounter with him. He walks in, he goes, are you a freshman? And I said, well, yeah. He said, well, I wanted a sophomore. I was like, sorry, you know, didn't know what to say. He's like, what's your major? He goes, I'm a, uh, he was like an aerospace engineering major. He's like, I'm an aerospace engineering major. I'm in the honors program. I was like, I'm general studies, <laughs> sir. And uh, night one, my first night, Saturday night, I was deciding that I was going to change my trajectory and I was going to find a church and I didn't know where to go. And so I got the phone book out. This was days, you know, way before you could just Google a church. And so I got the phone book out and I just started looking at what I thought might be close to me. Found a church I was going to go to, shut my thing, opened my Bible, and I was just kind of going, you know, new place, new people. He stops over my shoulder and he goes, you don't believe any of that, do you? And I said, well, yeah, kind of. And he was like, you know that religion, Jesus, is just a crutch for the emotionally weak. And I thought, this is going to be a great year, man. This is going to be really, really awesome. And, uh, you know, because in my mind I thought, college roommates, friends forever, you know, best man at other's wedding, running down the beach, doing whatever you do. No, 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 no. So all year long, all year long, 
we argued and debated, and I lost, and I lost, and I lost, and I lost, and I lost. And if I slept in on a Sunday morning, he would look over and he'd go, what's the matter? Not good enough today to go to church? God not big enough? I mean, that was the existence that I had for a full year. We came to the last day of the semester. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. And I would love to tell you that this guy, like the pro-counselor, met Jesus, changed his life, God redeemed him. No clue. He was as far away from the Lord that day as the day I met him. But as I spent time over the next years thinking about why that had to be that way or why God, what God was doing, I was reminded that this was the single greatest spiritual growth year of my entire life, my freshman year in college. And the enemy was doing everything he could to put people in my life to pervert the right ways of living. And there was no victory there. But I'll tell you what, it was the strongest accountability I've ever had in my life, and it didn't come from the hand of another believer. It came from the hand of someone that the enemy was using to try and derail me that God used to make sure that I stayed accountable. Because I knew that everything I did at that point in time was a witness to this guy who was trying to watch me fail. The point is, is that there are people and things in your life that will always try and pervert the right way of the Lord. When you say, God, I'm giving this up. I'm walking away from that behavior, that thing, that relationship, that thing. There will always be, the enemy will always bring up things, people, and situations to pervert that, to attempt to derail that. Because when you say yes to Jesus, send me, that I am sent and I am going, you will face opposition. It's not all snow cones and bubble machines. The reality is the enemy will do everything he can to derail you. The problem with most of us is that at first sign of struggle, we attribute that to shut doors of the Lord and we walk the other way. It's not always the case. Sometimes the derailment, the bar Jesus, the people like that in our life are obstacles that God uses as launching pads for mission. Herod, the death of James, they became launching pads of mission. Not moments of tragedy where we turn around and face and run the other way, but launching pads into the world. Even the death of James became a launching pad for the first mission movement. It empowered the believers. The nature and character of God is that he's a sending God and we exist as a sent people, right? That God is a searching and saving God and the gospel is at the core of that message and that message is for you. And there will always be people and situations that try and pervert the straight way of the Lord. So we press on. In the middle of difficulty, in the middle of fear, in the middle of struggle, we say, Jesus, I trust you. And this is what it means to follow Christ, not only as a church, but as individuals. Let's pray. God, we thank you for...